Mackie, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, gosh, you started to preach there for a second. thought I was <laughs> going to be out of a job this morning. Um, guys, we have so many gifted people um, in our church. I love these moments where we get to highlight, uh, I talked about this last week, highlight calling, because we all have uh, a macro calling. We're all image bearers of um, a God, a creating God, but also we have specific nuances and giftings and talents that uh, we get to carry, and like, what a unique calling um, that you have. That's really, really great in the way that, um, and actually it ties some into what I'm talking about today, but the way that what the world might perceive as a hindrance actually can be for God's glory and for the good of all mankind, and that's mostly what we're trying to do, is how do we serve God and serve other people. So, um, well, good morning. My name's Chris. I am the pastor here at City Church, and if you're new, um, I said this last week. I know we all listen to me every week, um, so this is just review for everyone, but just in case, today I leave on vacation, and I'm so excited. Um, we, I got wisdom when we were starting this church that uh, you should take uh, three weeks off in a row every year, which I know sounds crazy, and I'm tempted to justify it, but I'm not going to. Um, one, because like you need rest, not just to rest, though, but to work on the church, not in the church, and third, to um, remind yourself that you're not that important. And, uh, and so I'm really excited for all three of those things, uh, being gone for at least two weeks and then being here, but kind of working on the church, not in the church. There is so many incredible things happening um, in our community, and, you know, we just got to hear one of them. And, uh, and there's been a couple prophetic words given over our church that we're entering a new season, specifically like a season of growth, and um, I like, I think that that's true, and I also am really tired, and so I'm like, man, Lord, if I'm going to be in it for the next season, like, I do need to rest, and so I'm excited. Again, I said this last week, not all of you were consulted on this decision, but thank you. Uh, thanks for being a church that isn't just one personality driven, um, or if we are, it's Jesus, but the reason that uh, I think I can do this is because you should know we have a really great staff. Like, our staff is incredible, and so I can leave, and everything's going to be fine, and you might not even miss me at all, which is a little sad. Um, but Mandy and Megan and Caitlin and Jalen are phenomenal. And so um, when I'm not here next week, I know everything's going to be fine because you guys don't just have a cool building and a cool community, but you have a really, really talented team that serves this church. So uh, I'm excited both for that, and I'm excited to come back because I do believe that we're going to start entering um, maybe a little bit new or newer of a season in our church. Um, but until then, we are still in Acts. And uh, we started the series on Acts about a year ago, and we've been off and on going through it. I heard some snickering. I know. We are going to finish it, actually, next week. Acts is over. Uh, so today I have the second to last chapter in um, Acts, Acts 27. Next week is Acts 28. And one of my favorite commentators, this, this story, Acts 27, is all about a, uh, a shipwreck, and Paul trying to get to Rome, but not quite making it there, at least not in 27. And one of my favorite commentators says this about Acts 27. His name's I. Howard Marshall. He says, the length of the narrative of Acts 27, in proportion to that of the book as a whole, is remarkable, especially since at first sight, the narrative appears to contribute very little to the theological aim of Acts. He later goes on to call Acts 27 the strangest uh, chapter in the entire book. So that's what I'm working with this morning. 
And as I was reading that and kind of feeling a little discouraged this week, I wanted to be angry at someone, but then I remembered I make the sermon calendar, so I did this to myself. But even in the midst of a really long, strange, like nautical journey that it seems like uh, Paul is on that doesn't add a whole lot of theology or maybe spiritual depth on the surface, there is actually something really cool that comes out of this. And so uh, in 1848, there was a guy named James Smith. He uh, was from Scotland. He wrote an entire book on Acts 27. It's called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And he was a soldier. He was a yachtsman, which is a goal of mine, for 30 years. And um, he decided, I'm going to do everything I can to research everything about nautical life and uh, specifically what the shipwreck of Paul would have been like. So he goes and even lives for a year on the island that Paul is shipwrecked, trying to track weather patterns and do all of the research that he can. He probably would have landed here. This would have happened. And here's what uh, the conclusion of his entire book is. His gen- this is written, again, by I. Howard Marshall. His general conclusion was that Acts 27 was the work of an eyewitness who nevertheless was a landlubber. So you know this is an old thing. Who nevertheless was a landlubber, not a professional seaman. No sailor could have written the narrative uh, of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts, parts and less from actual observation. And so remember, Acts is actually just the second volume of a two-part work of Luke and Acts. It's written by a guy named Luke who was a doctor, uh, a pretty good historian, not a sailor by profession. And so after uh, years of research, James Smith concludes that this chapter must have been written, one, by not a professional sailor, just the language he used, the, the ways that he talked about it. This wasn't a professional sailor, but, but this must have been written by someone who was actually there by an eyewitness. And, and I want to, if you were here a year ago, um, we read this to kick off the series in Acts. I want to go back and I want to remind us why this was even written. And it's not at the beginning of Acts, it's at the beginning of Luke. Luke 1, he tells us why he was writing this whole two-part thing. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Then he goes on to say, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so Luke, he's a successful doctor. He's a pretty good historian, a really sharp guy. And he gives up uh, his own money. He gives up years of his life. He travels around with Paul. He either spends time in jail or outside of jail serving Paul. He gives up so much of his life simply to write one two-part volume where he says, I have one aim in doing this. He said to Theophilus, And he said to you, and he said to me, and he said to us, I'm writing this. The whole reason I'm doing this is so that you can know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Because, guys, Luke was there. Luke was, like, actually there. He interviewed the disciples. Aren't you thankful that your Bible was not written in 1200 A.D.? Aren't you thankful that it was written by eyewitnesses, that John and Matthew actually walked with Jesus, and we can trust the things that they said? That John Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was likely someone who just interviewed Peter and said, hey, tell me what you experienced. Aren't you glad that Luke did unbelievable research and the detail, the historical accurate detail that Luke records is unparalleled with any other historical account? And then he's actually with Acts, or he's actually with Paul, writing through the book of Acts saying this happened in the church and then this happened. Guys, we aren't reading some fairy tale. We actually have the word of God in front of us. It's amazing. We have a book that can be trustworthy. And Luke says, look, I'm writing this whole thing. 
And I want to remind us in Acts 27, when it seems like nothing is added to the story, he says, look, I'm writing this so that you can know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Guys, this book is amazing. The Bible is amazing. And it's written accurate and historical, not just some fairy tale that was made up a thousand years later. Luke was there. And here's what he writes. He writes in Acts 27, he said, look, we went from Caesarea, they're trying to go to Rome, and he records unbelievable detail. Um, He said, look, it's me, it's Paul, it's Aristarchus. They go to Sidon, along the coast of Cyprus, to Myra. Uh, They catch another boat, a grain boat from Alexandria. And this is kind of when disaster starts to happen, when a storm starts to come. And there's a map of a map of all the places that Paul went, and uh, he didn't take, like, the direct route. Because in part, um, they were traveling in the late fall. And we know that when you read Acts 27, it says that the Day of Atonement had just happened. And we all know that the Day of Atonement is in October. I know, it's just review. And we also all know we never sail on the Mediterranean past late fall. So again, just review. And so Paul, who is a seasoned sailor, says, guys, and the Romans weren't actually known for being great sailors. He said, guys, we don't want to do this. If you read through Acts 27, he's like, we should just stay Uh, here. We should winter here. We'll get to Rome eventually. Paul says, you don't want to sail um, past this date in this sea. And he's a prisoner. No one listens to him. And so uh, a storm comes and things start to get really ugly on this boat. And I'm going to call it for now like a season of bad starts to happen to Paul. Lots of negative things start to happen one after another after another. And so this storm comes and in Acts 27 verse 20, it says, neither The sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. This is Luke. He's on the boat. We gave up hope. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them. I love this. The Bible's also so real. Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and this loss. Guys, Paul is not above a good old-fashioned I told you so. And he said, look, none of this would have happened. And he's not being melodramatic. He's actually just stating the facts of saying this is what was happening. And he said, you could have avoided this if you would have just listened to me. It later says that they went 14 days. The entire boat went 14 days without eating. And there was still food on the boat. So most scholars think it's actually just because they were so seasick all the time that for two weeks they couldn't eat. And at one point, the the boat captains and a lot of the uh, actual sailors on the boat, they tried to escape through the lifeboat just to leave everybody else on board to die, and and they ended up getting caught, and no, we can't do that. And uh, and then in verse 40, the storm picks up so much, Paul says, look, you should eat something, and then they finally run aground. It says, cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind, and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. Guys, this is a bad season. <laughs> this is a bad few uh, years for Paul. He's in prison, and uh, he's in prison for crimes that he did not commit. He actually didn't do anything wrong. So he's in prison uh, for things he didn't do. Actually, the only thing he did do was he was faithful to Jesus. So he's not right, uh, unrightfully in prison. And then he has to... Um, go to a boat to go to Rome, and he's probably the most experienced sailor on that boat, yet no one listens to him because he has the least amount of authority. There's no food, or at least there's no food for him to eat. 
There's no trust that the boat has with him. And finally, they end up shipwrecked on some strange, small island. When Paul wanted to be in the biggest, most influential city at the time because he had to preach to Caesar. And they end up on some island that they didn't even know the name of it. And then we learn in Acts 28, they did find out the name of it. It's Malta. And if you could go back to the map, Malta is um, way down at the bottom, and you can't actually see it. It's not because the picture's not clear enough. It's because the island is so small that you can't see it. It's where those two red arrows meet. They wanted to get to Rome, the big city, where all of the influential people were, and yet they ended up in Malta a place of no significance that they didn't even know the name of for a while. Everyone say Malta. Have you ever, have you ever been to Malta? Not like physically, but have you ever been to the place that you never wanted to be? Have you ever been to the place that you ended up there even though you didn't do anything to deserve being there? Malta is the place that we never thought we would be, yet we end up there some, Somehow. Malta's that bad medical report that you get. Malta is the desire to be married, yet being in your 30s and still single. Malta is when your attractions and your convictions don't line up. Malta is when you have to ask yourself that question you never thought you would answer. Did I marry the wrong person? Malta is when they say they're making cuts at work and you are one of them. Malta is when you wake up again in the wrong bed and you swore to yourself you would never do that again. Malta is when your kids tell you that they hate you. Malta is when you're barred from seeing your grandkids. Malta is when you find out you're not pregnant again. Malta is when the divorce paperwork gets delivered to you. Malta is that place that you never thought. Malta is the place for other people because people that have their life together like you, like me, we never end up in Malta until we do. It's the place we never thought we would go. It's the level of depression or anxiety, or insecurity that we never thought was possible for someone like me. That was just for other people. And yet Paul, famed missionary, great theologian, lands in Malta, a place that says full of barbarians, not influential people at all, not the place that he's supposed to be. Uh, I've been to Malta once, actually a few times. Um, Not physical Malta, but I remember... Um, in between Las Vegas and uh, we li- used to live in Las Vegas. And when we moved here, we lived uh, and moved to Europe for a few months. And, uh, and one of the big reasons we could is because we were on uh, year three of infertility. And so we wished we had a kid by then. We didn't. And so one of the uh, cool small benefits is that I guess we can go live somewhere else before we move to Cincinnati and help start this church. And, uh, and one of the things that a lot of our friends said to us in Las Vegas, and the well-meaning friends with, I think, relatively sound advice, they said, guys, it's going to happen in Europe. You guys are going to get pregnant in Europe. This is finally when it happens. For you. You're going to relax. You don't have the stress of church. You don't have the stress of anything. You guys live in Europe. This is when God's going to give you a child. And so we were there for three months. It's meant, uh, we have three shots at this thing. That doesn't make sense. Ask your parents what that means. But um, we, uh, the first two months, we don't get pregnant. And um, that's okay because there's still the third month. And uh, so the third month, it's about time when we would find out the good or bad news. And one of the things we did is we tried to travel as often as we could. And we heard about this beautiful place called Santorini. 
and so we uh, take a weekend trip, just 48 hours, like, um, and we splurged on those little dome houses that you, I don't know, it's famous in Santorini, um, and uh, non-refundable, so it was cheaper, and so I remember we get to the Rome airport, it's where our layover was, and uh, Catherine comes out of the bathroom, and she tells me that she's not pregnant, and we just cried. Because it wasn't only that we weren't pregnant that month. It meant that all of the, all of the, the hopes and the dreams and, and the logical making sense of everything is like, yeah, it'll happen in Europe. It'll happen once we're there because that would be the time God would release his blessing. And it wasn't just the death of one month. It was the death of an entire dream. And what we felt like was almost a promise. At least people told us that could be what God was doing. And it was the death of an entire dream that we had that this is when we get pregnant. This is why God's been holding out for three years. And so we get on our plane to go to Santorini, and it felt like a little bit of um, silver lining. And so we're descending to go to the island. We can see the island, and all of a sudden we speed back up, uh, go back up into the air, and turn around, and the pilot says, there's too much fog. Uh, we have to go back to Rome. And I took, like, a handful of flying lessons when I was in high school in, like, a single-engine, two-seater plane. And I was pretty sure I could have landed the plane. <laughs> Also, I was incredibly angry, so I don't, like, fully believe everything I'm saying, but I remember getting mad and turning to Catherine, but I could have landed. I saw the land. Like, it would have been fine. Most of us would have made it. And, <laughs> and he said, no, the fog's too strong. So we go back to Rome, and, and we get there, and they said, you're not getting out tonight. We don't know if you'll get out tomorrow. And I remember laying on the, the floor of the airport, and it's not glorious there. It's about an hour from the city. You can't go to actual Rome. You're in some backwoods suburb. Laying on the floor of Rome not pregnant, and not even getting the small silver lining that we felt like God at least owed us that. That we spent this money and we had this dream of going to this really, really beautiful place and what, what a better place to mourn. And uh, I felt like I was in Malta. And so Paul goes on and uh, Paul also had a season of good news. He also had a season of favor on his life in Acts 27. Like when they landed in Sidon, uh, this is uncharacteristic of being a prisoner of Rome, but the, the guy said, hey, you can go visit your friends if you want. Just make sure you come back. And they probably sent a guard with him, but uh, prisoners don't get that freedom. Prisoners don't leave the boat, according to Rome. But Paul was given unbelievable favor there. Also, it says in verse 23, while he's on the boat, last night an angel of the God of whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. You're going to do the thing I've called you to do. You will get to Rome. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Uh, there are six visions that Paul has throughout the book of Acts. This is the sixth one. And an angel actually shows up to him and he says, look, you have a calling to preach in Rome. This is what you, it, it, we, we said in Acts 9, right? You're going to preach to the Gentiles and their kings. You're going to get to preach to the king. You will stand trial before Caesar. And God gives him unbelievable favor. He gives him good news in that moment. And so much favor that it actually spills out to the other 275 people on that boat. And says not one of them is going to be lost. Not one of them is going to die. And so they're shipwrecked on Malta. And this bleeds into now chapter 28. And it says, in uh, Acts 28, the very first part, it says that Paul, just trying to be a good prisoner, he was gathering wood. And when he reached down and got a piece of wood and threw it on the fire, a viper 
uh, presumably a poisonous viper, latches onto his hand. It said it fastened. So Paul doesn't just get bit by snakes. Paul gets, like, fastened by snakes. He's having a bad series of events. And the snake latches onto him, and people assume it's because he's a murderer. We're in the presence. The, Mal- the Maltese people, they say, this must be because he is a murderer, and the god named Justice has come after him. Justice was the daughter of Zeus. Justice's job was to administer justice. Wasn't their best work. <laughs> and so they said, Justice has gotten him. He's going to die. And then it says in verse 5, Paul shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up suddenly or fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. At first, he was a murderer. Moments later, he's a god. At one point, they're chanting Hosanna. The next moment, they're chanting crucify him. We are so petty. And the Maltese people say, okay, I guess he's not a murderer. He must be a god, and he deserves to be worshipped. And so, thus far in Acts 28, this is probably more reflective of how our life is. It's not good than bad or bad than good. It's just a little bit of both. Paul gets uh, bit by a snake, but he doesn't die. But then he's accused of murder, and then he's hailed as a god. It's this constant weaving in and out of both good and bad. And I remember we finally made it to Santorini. And um, there was a new worship album that had just come out uh, by Brian and Katie Torvald. And one of the songs on there uh, was Praise Before My Breakthrough. And Catherine and I, we listened to that song nonstop. And it's about exactly what the title says. That it's still possible to praise before you have the breakthrough that you're looking for. And I remember sitting there and we, uh, we had 24 hours. And somehow, like, God multiplied our time. We saw every part of the island that we wanted to. We had a great night. I remember having a dinner outside, looking at the sunset, and we were both able to have a glass of wine. And just the little small things that we got to enjoy. And I remember, in the midst of being in Malta, I remember the presence of God being maybe the thickest I've ever felt it. And I remember the Holy Spirit, he's described as a comforter. I don't think I've ever been so comforted by the presence of God. And I remember processing and praying and mourning and rejoicing in the midst of listening to that song. That's how life usually is. It's the good and the bad. And, uh, and I did something at the beginning of this message that I never do, but I want to be transparent. I basically cut and pasted parts of Acts 27 to make um, all of the bad things happen in a row. And then all of the good things. But actually, if you read through Acts 27, what really happens is Paul goes to prison, but then he finds favor in Sidon. But then a storm comes, and it wasn't his fault. He actually could have prevented it. But then in the midst of the storm, an angel comes, and there's a vision of you're going to be saved. But then they try to kill all the prisoners, but then the Roman guard says, no, 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 we're going to save them. But then they're shipwrecked, but then not one of them died. And then he gets bit by a snake, but then he doesn't die. And then he's hailed a murderer, and then he's hailed a god. And that's actually the way that Acts 27 works. And sometimes we're tempted. And by we, I do mean me. To just look back at a season and say, man, it was a season of tough. It's been a season of busyness. It's been a season of uh, just bad thing after bad thing. And as I'm reading through Acts 27, I'm trying to actually get to that point. Because when I look back at my 2021, I remember, I'm, I'm starting to tell people, it was just a tough year. It was a really tough year. And I'm reading through Acts 27, trying to, and you don't 
do this as a good preacher either. But I'm trying to make my point of, hey, sometimes bad things happen. And I can't make it because actually good things happen in the midst of bad things. And then I start thinking about my 2021, and I realize I've been telling people this whole year that that last year is not accurate. I didn't have just a bad year. I had a great year and a really tough year. If you were a part of our church in the summer, we went through something really difficult as a church, specifically difficult for me. And then Catherine got pregnant. And then we got kicked out of our venue that we were promised we'd have for a year. And I became a real estate agent more than I became a pastor. And then we found a gigantic building with a basketball court and stained glass and pews for an offensively low amount of money. And I start looking back, because I've been telling lots of people, I've mostly been telling myself 2021 was just a tough year. And actually, that's not true. Just the same way that Paul on that boat wasn't really just a series of bad things. It was a little bit of good and a little bit of bad because that's currently where we are. Actually, later on in Acts 28, uh, Paul, because he doesn't die, he gets to meet the chief of Malta. And he prays for his father who has dysentery and he's immediately healed. And then they start bringing all the rest of the sick on the island. And they're all immediately healed. Every single one of them. And I don't believe that God causes evil. There's another force at work that does that. God doesn't cause evil. When bad things happen and we often want to say, God, why did you do that? We're usually blaming the wrong person. God doesn't cause evil, but man, he is so good at redeeming it. He doesn't cause evil. That's the job of Satan. But when Satan comes in, it's the specialty. He has a doctorate in redeeming evil and turning it into good. He is the best of all time. And when we look at the story that we're going to be talking about in about a month, Friday seemed like death. It was despair. It was the lowest of the low until Sunday came. And it was our victory. It was our prevail. It was the life of Jesus. What often looks like death usually is life when we live in a cross-shaped world. And we live in a cross-shaped world where bad things can happen and Jesus can immediately redeem them where things can happen to us, and yet somehow the Holy Spirit can turn them around in an instant. God didn't do it. He didn't cause the evil, but he will use it. God didn't do it, but he'll use it. God didn't do the evil that was done to you or around you or in your world, but he can, and I believe he wants to, use it. He doesn't cause evil, but man, he is an expert at redeeming it. And we live in this weird, strange time mixed with good and evil. It's that famous verse in Genesis 50 where uh, Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And he said, as for you, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And in our Western type A minds, we're like, well, which one was it? Was it good or evil? And it turns out it was both. It was an evil thing that was redeemed for good. And sometimes our biggest adversities can turn into our greatest opportunities. The thing that was coming against you at the most actually turns into the thing that God could use the best. And while everyone else on that boat was preparing for a wreck, God was preparing for a revival. While everyone was bracing themselves for impact on the boat because they were going to run ashore in some no-name island, God was preparing the hearts of people to be healed physically and spiritually. While they were preparing for a wreck, God was preparing for a revival. And that is often the story that's in our lives as well. In Genesis 1 and 2, we uh, see perfection, right? In the garden, 
everything is as it should be. And then if you read the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, we see perfection again. In Revelation 21, God says, look, there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying. Uh, I'm making all things new. And so we currently live in between two perfections. We can still sort of see the, the remnant of what was in the garden, and we can look forward to the thing that's coming in the city, but we live in between these two perfections. Jesus, in Luke 17, he said, the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. It's here in your midst. And then in Luke 19, Jesus said, look, the kingdom's not going to come this way or that way. It still is yet to come. Well, which one is it, Jesus? Has the kingdom come, or is it still coming? Yes. Thanks for that. It's what theologians call the already but not yet. Again, not their best work either. But we live in the already but not yet kingdom. The kingdom has already come. Jesus instituted his new reign when he came and died and rose again. And it's not quite here yet in its fullness. But it will be when he comes back. And we live in this weird gray middle. We live in this weird gray middle where we get to experience the and. We get to experience both evil and good. Hard and easy. God is oftentimes the God of the and. He causes good and redeems evil. He is the God of grace and truth. We worship him in spirit and in word. He forgives and he restores. He loves and he corrects. He is beautiful and he is strong. He is your Lord and he is your Savior. He is your friend and he is your King. He exalts and he humbles. He lets you choose and there are consequences to your choice. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Lion and the Lamb. He is the God of the end. Very few times does he make it an either or because he is both and. He comes in and he says, I can redeem the evil and I will cause good to fall on you. And we live in the midst of that time. Very few times. Does God make you choose either or? Very few times, because we live with a God who lets us choose both and. Some of the ors that uh, we have with God is we can choose to follow God or we cannot. Not a whole lot of middle there. We can choose to uh, consider his word authoritative or we cannot. We can't pick and choose. We can choose to make him our first and primary love or we cannot. But the rest of the time, man, the world wants to pull you to one side or the other. The world wants to constantly pull you into the or, and God invites us into the and. And is way messier. And is way harder. And is way more difficult to live in the nuance and the tension, yet he invites us into that moment, not the either or. And so um, I want to close by saying, how do we live in two perfections? How do we live between a garden and between a city, both of them perfect and yet in the middle? That's not quite the case. One, we rejoice. We rejoice because the kingdom has come, guys. Jesus is here. He's alive. We're not waiting on him to die, or we're not waiting on him to be alive sometime later. He's actually alive now. We can rejoice because the kingdom has come. And we can mourn because the kingdom is not yet fully here. The band can come up. We're going to go into worship. And I want us to think about in our lives, in this season, although I don't want to call it a season anymore, but in this season, where are we needing to rejoice and where are we needing to mourn? And are we giving ourselves space for both? First Thessalonians say that we actually should mourn. And as Christians, we sometimes write off that as, 
weak or soft because Jesus is alive. We have no reason to be sad, but actually that's not completely true. First Thessalonians says that we should mourn, that we should grieve, but we should grieve differently than the rest of the world. We grieve differently because we grieve as those that still have hope. We grieve with one eye on the world, looking at the injustice in and around us, the sin in and around us, and we grieve with one eye on the sky, waiting for him to come back in his fullness. And what we learn from Paul is we don't always need a reason. We don't always need to know the reason that we're in the midst of something. Sometimes we just need a revelation. Paul didn't continually ask the reason that he was on a boat in a storm. He said his peace and then he left it open and God revealed himself. There was a revelation. Paul said, it's fine that I don't know the reason. Sometimes I just need a revelation. And when we're in the midst of a storm, we just need to know that there is the revealed God in front of us. There's a peace with not understanding fully everything, but there is a peace also with knowing that God is with us. He's the God of the end, and he invites us into deeper conviction, deeper levels of holiness, and he calls us into the joy of just being his kids. And it's hard to live into one or the other, but it's really hard to live in the middle. So Jesus, I pray that you would um, reveal yourself in this middle. God, that you would reveal yourself not as one or the other, but the God of the and. You bring good and you redeem bad. Jesus, help us to worship you in the midst of both. Help us to learn from the ways that Paul didn't need a reason, but he just needed to be revealed of who you are and that you were with him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, the front is open. Uh, sometimes we need to change our posture to rep represent what's changing in our heart. We have uh, people to pray on either side and also the Lord's table that you can take as well.